Welcome to the Health Leader Forge. My name is Mark Bonica. I'm a professor at the University of New Hampshire in the Department of Health Management and Policy. And ordinarily, I'd be introducing myself as the podcast host for today, but I'm trying something new. I've invited one of the students here at the University of New Hampshire to join me as a guest host. So I'd like to introduce today Samir Panasar. Hi, Samir. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. So you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah, so I'm a senior here at the University of New Hampshire, uh, and I'm a political science major. But I also have uh, an interest in healthcare in a broader sense. So that's a little bit about me. Great. Who did you invite to be on the podcast this time? Well, for this time, we spoke with Dr. Skip Hometz, Families First Health and Support Center in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. He's the dental director there. And why did you reach out to Dr. Hametz? Well, Dr. Hametz is somebody who in the state of New Hampshire has had a really interesting career. For most of his career, he was in private practice in a small town in New Hampshire, but then later had a, had a second professional life in terms of starting the dental component of the Federally Qualified Health Center in Portsmouth. And as somebody that's really interested in a career in dental medicine, but also more broadly in delivery and payment reform within the world of healthcare, he was somebody who I wanted to hear from in terms of his unique career in the world of healthcare. And you have an interest in dentistry as well. I do, yeah. So I'm hoping to pursue a career within dental medicine, but uh, one that, uh, you know, maybe strays off the track a little bit of, of, of most practicing dentists. Okay. Uh, strays how? Uh, strays in terms of trying to tackle some of the broader um, challenges and opportunities that I see within both oral healthcare delivery and, and more broadly within healthcare delivery. And what did you learn from the interview with Dr. Hametz that you didn't know about him before? Well, something that I knew about him before, but I think was was enhanced throughout the interview, was really how how humble of a guy he is. One of the things that really kind of stood out to me was when he was talking about the homeless component uh, and, and providing dental care to the homeless population in New Hampshire. He said that he was probably the person that got the most out of it in terms of how it made him feel to be able to provide uh, services to people who normally don't receive such a type of service. So I thought that really spoke to the kind of person that he is and the kind of um, things that he values. So that was probably one of the, one of the, uh, the takeaways about him. The other thing that I really took away was how much opportunity there is in terms of making things happen that aren't necessarily fairly standard. The way that he got involved with Families First was was by a recommendation and just to serve as, as kind of an advisor on how to develop the dental component. And obviously his career ended up blooming into into being much more than just an advisor. So so that really got me excited about, you know, having a career that, you know, I'm not entirely sure what it's going to encompass, but I'm sure that there are plenty of opportunities uh, out there like that. And it just takes being a little, uh, you know, looking for certain opportunities and, and getting out there and talking to folks. Awesome. You did a great job on the interview, so I'm really excited to share this as a first student-led interview. Hopefully we're going to do a bunch more like this. So thanks again for doing that. And here is Samir Panasar interviewing Dr. Skip Hametz. Welcome to The Forge, Dr. Hametz. So you went to Cornell University in New York. How did you decide to go to Cornell and, and what did you study? Well, I, I, you know, I guess it starts early, even in growing up in, you know, kind of the middle school setting, the high school setting. I, you know, my, my sciences were, were pretty strong. I it was always, I had a great relationship with a primary care doc, 
uh, family doctor at the time, and back in those days, you know, they were making house calls and all that type of thing. And I remember him helping me through some, some science projects. So, so you know, it's, it's, it started there. I had summer jobs. I, I worked in a hospital in an X-ray as an X-ray technician. I actually, uh, you know, was an autopsy assistant at one point. So I became oriented in that I, with, the, with the strength in, in, you know, in sciences. And, and really wanting to, to sort of develop into a desire to be in the medical world. So then Cornell, then why Cornell? Coming out of uh, Western Mass, small high school, I played football. So that, that was a factor. And I was recruited to, to you know, a bunch of different schools. And um, you know, there, was a, there was a challenge in Cornell that didn't exist in some of the other locations. In fact, you know, one of the, uh, one of the coaches said, you know, you, you ought to come here because I'm not so sure you can do it at Cornell. So, oof, so let's go. So, so I ended up at Cornell University. Excellent. What did you, what did you end up majoring in? You, you know, Cornell at the time had a, had a strong, uh, you know, a, a strong requirement in languages in their bachelor's. I was in the School of Arts and Sciences and it's in their bachelor's program and, and it almost killed me. Although I was good in sciences, you know, language was not my, it was not my bag. But um, I, I ended up, I started looking at zoology, I ended up with biological sciences, which, which offered me a broad range throughout that major and, and the minor. And it also got all the requirements in for uh, medical dental school. So after college, you enrolled at Columbia University College of Dental Medicine, where you earned your doctorate of dental surgery. How did you decide to go into dentistry, and why did you pick Columbia? So actually, I kind of stepped back. You know, while I was in high school, I played American Legion baseball. And I had taken batting practice. And after batting practice, I was walking out behind the infield, just kind of just to field, um, field some, some balls. And, and not looking, I got hit in the head with a line drive. And I woke up at Wesson Memorial Hospital in Springfield, Mass. And attending to me on that Saturday afternoon was a neurosurgeon. And he, we, we got talking over the couple days that I was there. And, and he, you know, he said, what, are you gonna, what do you want to do? I said, well, you know, I, I want to go into the, I want to be a doctor. He said, you want to be, look, he says, look at me. This is Saturday afternoon in the middle of the summer. It's a beautiful day. I'm here. You, 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 you want to be a dentist. You know, you're still part of the, the, you know, the medical world and um, you're dealing with basically healthy people in the big, in the big picture and you're not going to find yourself in the hospital on Saturday afternoons. So, I mean, that, that might be an introduction to it. Um, I got close to some dentists uh, going through time. And so I, I applied to both medical and dental schools. And just when push came to shove, just decided to go to the dental, the dental, the, the dental piece. Why Columbia, though? That's, that's a significant piece because Columbia's first two years is with the medical students. It's in the medical school. It's Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in, 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 in New York. So Columbia was in New York. I really wanted to get to a metropolitan, a major metropolitan area. I wanted to be at a major metropolitan, a major uh, medical center, and Columbia offered me those. Also, uh, at the time, it was, it was one of the smaller classes. Uh, we started with 42 uh, uh, students in, in my class, and I thought that was a you know, potentially a big benefit, too. After dental school, you were in the U.S. Navy Dental Corps for two years at the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard. What drew you to the Navy? 
Well, it, we're, so now we're going to go back and we're going to age me, which is where I belong. You know, we're now talking the uh, late 60s. And, you know, for as history goes, you know, that was Vietnam era. And um, so we were all concerned with uh, we were all concerned with our military obligations. My my uh, my dad was a veteran of the South Pacific, so we had a you know that that background there and a desire and a need to need to serve. Going into dental school, Tet offensive time, and 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 we were we were all going one way or the other. So, um, dad was dad was in uh, Navy. To tell you the truth, I did. I, you know, if I could avoid the the jungles of Vietnam, that was a good deal. While I could still serve, that was a good deal. Also, coming out of uh, dental school, you know, residencies and internships weren't as big a a, a deal at that point. So the Navy was going to uh, offer me the opportunity to, to grow and practice uh, for, for a few years, however that number of years that might be. So at that time, you know, we, it was four years of, uh, I went in, as I went into dental school in, um, in the reserves, so that was four years of reserves and, and two years of active duty, and, um, you know, that's how, it, that's how it came down. What was the work like, and, and what responsibilities did it entail? Yeah, I I, I, I think I hit a, a somewhat of a unique situation. I came right to uh, uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Here, uh, the uh, the shipyard, which was which at the time was uh, you know Portsmouth was a full bone military city. You know, Pease was a you know I don't know ten thousand people hospital. You know, the uh, the the Navy situation had the shipyard, the prison, and, and a hospital. But the dental clinic was um, was uh, was three junior officers, a senior uh, four striper captain, and we had our own lab. We had an oral surgeon available at the hospital. It was a wonderful learning experience, um, one I couldn't have hoped for, uh, hope be any, any better. So I was basically allowed within the parameters of, of, of both the military and this clinic to, to do what I wanted to do. I, I, uh, we had a sick call, so we, we dealt with emergencies, and then we treat and planned our own cases and provided those the services. And we could pretty much, I came out of Columbia with a lot of, with a lot of clinical surgical experience, and I felt ready to go in those areas. And I was really, you know, we were allowed, uh, we were allowed to run with it in the, from the practice standpoint. So we were monitored, however, and, but not, it, we, we weren't on any treadmill or anything. We, I didn't find myself on amalgam lines, which, which would be routine stuff day after day. There was a lot of variety. It's a very, very valuable experience. So being a clinician, such as a dentist, is an important part of an individual's identity. When did you know you would really internalize that part of your identity? So in other words, when did you really feel like you were a dentist? Well, that's an interesting question, but you know, you spend four years of undergraduate, four years of dental school, and dental school's tough, you know? You get beaten up. So you, you kind of come through it, you pass, you, you have to take these boards, these clinical boards, these national boards, and you come through it, you know? And so it didn't take me long to be glad to, to be called doctor. So I'm going to say they gave me that diploma and, uh, you know, I reported for duty as a dentist. 
So after the Navy, you went into private practice in Antrim, New Hampshire. How did you decide to go into private practice, and why did you choose Antrim? I, I think my thing was, you know, uh, I was always looking at private practice. Uh, also, at the time, the public health sector in dental w w pretty much wasn't there. But again, if you want, we can reflect back to probably your first question, how did you get to where you were? You know, I remember working in, in um, one of my first college summers, I worked in a quarry, a redstone quarry. And that was before the big days of OSHA. So, so you'd, you'd, you'd be in these hot summers, you know, down in these holes, you know, working jackhammers. And then the, the coffee truck would come at about 10 o'clock. So I decided at that time that I wanted to be the guy who dictated when the coffee truck came. And that, you know, it makes for a little humor, but there's really truth in it. So my answer to your question is I kind of wanted to, I kind of wanted to be my own boss. And, um, and that was, I even, I knew at that time that I could do that in a, in a private practice. Why Antrim? When we were in Portsmouth, we were looking for quality of life. And, and this is something dentistry allows you to do. I mean, you can pick where you want to go. You can still do. You could then, you can now. Portsmouth was a very military town, a lot of crime. We had uh, one child at the time, my wife was expecting number two, and the schools were on double sessions. So we had decided at the time that Portsmouth wasn't really where we wanted to be. So we just started west. We, knew, we did know we, want, we liked New Hampshire a lot. So we wanted to stay in New Hampshire, so we, we, we went west and, and started looking at areas. The Manadnock region was, you know, nice small town, a little bit kind of, a sophistication, and then we looked at the best place. It was really re the hospital people were semi-recruiting, saying, you know, this is a good place to be. We need some dentists, and where do you put the practice? I talked to dentists at the time, and there was a lot more of that going on at that time, too. Uh, you know, kind of consulting or chatting and a lot of openness. You know, this is what is, this is what could be. And um, so a couple of physicians had, a, had space in, in the small town of Antrim, which was just north of Peterborough. And um, let's set it up, let's do. So I rented space there and, and uh, equipped it and let's go. Uh, were you in solo practice or did you have a partner? Yeah, no, I opened the door. First hired uh, you know, a receptionist to answer the phone before I left the military. I made a few trips over there to see some emergencies while I was still in the military. And, and then grew from there. So I needed somebody right away. We, you know, you, you had to write some pretty big checks. You know, by today's standard, they were small, but still you had to equip, uh, you know, at least two treatment rooms. You had to have all the x-ray equipment. Um, you had the furniture in the reception room. You need the business stuff in the business office. You had to hire a second person as a dental assistant. Yeah, it's certainly, it was all forehanded dentistry, and you know, even to this day, if if my assistant doesn't show up for work, I I don't I don't work. So we needed two people, and I opened the door as a, and waited for people to call. What were some of the similarities and differences um, in Antrim as compared to your position in the Navy? Yeah, huge huge differences, and and and. Uh, you know, I think I think there's a parallel between. The, the Navy, Navy is a, is a public health system, part of the public health system. And so, you, you know, there are parameters about, around what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And the standard of care is the same. 
scope of practice might be different. You might, you might, uh, in in the in the Navy, be be told, well, you're not going to do these. Somebody else is going to do the root canals, or somebody else is going to do the extractions. I, I didn't run into much of that. But indeed, going into private practice, you control all the variables. You decide where you're going to be. Uh, you're, you're going to decide how you're going to do it, whether you're going to be in a solo practice or, a, you know, a group practice, and you're going to decide what procedures you're 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 going to be performing. And of course, you've got to be able to back that up with the education and the standard of care and all. But a lot of flexibility, a lot of ownership. You're the boss, and the Navy, you don't have that level of freedom. Uh, so you were in private practice for 32 years in Antrim. Um, what made you decide to, to stay in private practice there? Private practice was really rewarding. Private practice was everything that, that I, I helped it would be. It really allowed you, to, allowed me to develop my managerial skills, really develop my professional skills, my communication skills, and entrepreneurial skills within that professional level. It allowed me to interface, as did the Navy, as does the public sector, with, you know, with, with people. So why did I stay? So I, I got into it and enjoyed those, the growth in all those areas. You stay with it, though, because of the people. And if you ask any dentist who gets out in retirement and you ask them what they miss, they don't miss fillings or extractions or root canals. They miss the people. And the relationships that you develop and that grow over those number of years are, are just in, absolutely in, invaluable. And so that's, uh, that's why I'd say, I, you know, say it was no problem staying, staying with it. Uh, while you were in practice in Antrim, you became the Monadnock Component Trustee to the New Hampshire Dental Society for four years. How did you decide to get involved in New Hampshire Dental Society? Well, um, to be sure, I don't care what profession or business, you know, we, have, we have responsibilities to that in, in the professions. We have a responsibility to the profession and to elevate uh, the, the profession and the standards of the profession and the practice of the profession. And, and in dentistry, it's, it's the American Dental Association, basically. And the American Dental Association is, is tripartite. There are three levels of it. There's the, there's the uh, national level, the American Dental Association. There's the state level, which is the New Hampshire Dental Society. And then there's the component level. So in New, New Hampshire, I, you know, I'm going to say there's nine components spread across the state. So the Monadnock region was that component. Was that component that I was exposed to, and I just felt as though I had a responsibility to be part of that organized that organize that organization. What did um, what did that position entail? What were your responsibilities? Well, the responsibilities were, you know, to some degree minimal. I mean, we, you know, we met probably at the most once a month, maybe every six weeks, and at that level, you're, there's there's a lot of collegiality. Dentistry can be insular, and in fact, I was in Antrim, New Hampshire, small town. All, at that point, all by all by myself. If I don't if I don't get out there, I don't I don't I don't, I don't get feedback, and uh, you can get very stale. You can get very set in your ways. You can think you know it all. So those opportunities to to be part of that Monadnock component 
to, to and then take, uh, there's the collegiality piece, there's the education piece, what's going on in Keene? What's going on in that whole area? That was my responsibility to take that back to the state, to the New Hampshire Dental Society, to the board there, because that, as, as that component representative, I sat on the board. So, and then it worked the other way also. You take what's going on at the state and the responsibilities there, the educational pieces, the opportunities, you take that from the state level back, back to the Nanak region and that component. So that, that was pretty much the extent of those responsibilities. So in 2003, you became the dental director at the Family's First Community Health and Support Center in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, a position that you still hold to this day. Tell us a bit about Families First. For those of our listeners who are unfamiliar with what federally qualified health centers are, could you expand on what they do and what role they play in our healthcare system? Okay, bring me back to that question. But I, I, you know, if 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 it's okay with you, I'd like to tell you how I got there, how I how it happened, because a lot of a, a lot of my uh, life and experience is putting one foot in front of the other, and um, to some degree, that's how this happened. Um, I was winding down my practice. My practice built in, in Antrim, and and uh, to the extent of we had we ended up with three dentists and a whole bunch of hygienists and probably a staff of 13, 15 people. So it was a it was a, it was a really great operation. But I was winding out of it, and um, you know as the last kid was out of the house, my wife said to me, "We're living in Peterborough." My wife says to me, "I want to go where there are people." So we had been back and forth to the seacoast and, and up in Maine and all that. So I said, you know what? There's no re- really reason not to. My, my partner, with whom I had a wonderful experience and a wonderful transition, and indeed I would recommend today that people you, you know, get into associateships and have, have, have others close to them. But he was in place and there was no reason we couldn't come out. We couldn't. So we moved, we moved over to the seacoast. At the same time, I'm going through the chairs of the Dental Society. And... And other things happen too, relative to oral health care, you know, nationally. But as I as we moved over here, I had some time on my hand, and at the, and at that time, Families First, the federally qualified health center, was looking at putting in a dental center. So we tied in. They they contacted me. I contacted them. Whatever, whatever it happened, they asked me if I'd stay close and do some consulting relative to the implementation of that. Of that of that dental center within within the federally qualified health center, so that's how that's how I I got involved at, at, at the beginning. Well, what's a federally qualified health center? It's a primary care setting, which is community based and patient kind of patient driven. The, the board of, of a federally qualified health center has to be 51% patients. It provides all built around primary care. Here at Families First, we've got primary care. We've got prenatal, dental, behavioral health, homeless outreach, a, a, you know, addiction, diff, different addiction treatment programs. We have family and uh, parenting classes support. And for the population that comes in, uh, we have case management and, and, and care coordination. And a federally qualified health center is basically designed and, and located where, where access is an issue. So we exist to provide access to services for people who have problems in that, in that, in that area of accessing health care. 
So the beauty of the federally qualified health center, and the reason I've stayed involved to the point I, I, I am, is the model. So we're dealing with people who have access to care. Our, our patient population, two-thirds of them are below the federal poverty level. Now that's, that's about $20,000, area of $20,000 a year for a family of three. Another 25% are between that $20,000 and 100% of poverty level and 200% of poverty level. So for those populations, for everybody under 100% of the poverty level, the dental is, is provided at a nominal fee. Between 100% and 200%, it's a sliding fee scale. So you can imagine with, with a population a demographic like that, these folks don't just have a toothache. These folks come in with a myriad of chronic disease exposures, depression, diabetes, hypertension, smokers. You know, we don't see a lot of smoke. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't interface with a lot of smoke. I do a lot of smokers, you know, here. A lot of drug, a lot of drug issues. A lot of polypharmacy, people exposed to a lot of different things. So this, this is a, a magnificent model to deal, to be able to deal with all those pieces under one roof, regardless of the ability to pay. So I hope in a nutshell, that's a picture of what a Fed, now, now one, uh, it, the, the saying amongst, uh, around federally qualified health centers is if you've seen one federally qualified health center, you've seen one. They're all a little different. You know, they can be in locations in cities and, and dense populations where certain populations don't have access. They can be in very rural areas where there are no providers. They can be in areas where specific populations aren't addressed. In our case here, we started, uh, the, the, uh, the health center was really started as a health center. It started earlier as a prenatal center, but about 1997. And uh, soon after that got its uh, FQHC designation and got it because of the homeless outreach program. And so you, you, know, you go around Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and you say, excuse me, a homeless population problem? And I'll say, yep. So we can, we're able under this one roof, regardless of the ability to pay, to address this multitude of issues and provide this, this, this level of support and integration. Uh, could you talk a little bit about um, comparing the difference between your private practice in Antrim and being here uh, at the FQHC? When I came to Portsmouth, I, I, and they wanted to put a dental center in, I, I really didn't have a good, uh, a good focus on, on what the difference was, or for that matter, what I was getting, what I was getting into. I, I definitely came out of private practice for 30 years, 30 plus years, that's where my experience was. So, you know, in private practice, you, you pretty much decide, you, you, you decide what you're gonna do, how you're gonna do it, and you, the, the patient pretty much decides what services they, you, you, you teach them. You give them their options, and they make the choices. And when you come in to, to, to Families First, you see a very, very different population. But in this, in this sector, we're dealing with fixed 
resources, with fixed assets. We, we only, let's, let's say we only have so, so many resources to go around a certain population. So, so the choices are narrower. The scope of practice is narrower. We're gonna do, we're, we're, we're gonna do fewer, we're gonna do fewer root canals and more extractions. We're gonna do fewer fixed prosthesis. And, 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 and that's, you know, we're gonna do fewer implants and more removable prosthesis. So, so the, the, the patients, the, the, the facility has more, has more input into the services that will be provided than, and the patient probably has, has they, they, have, they have the same choices actually, but in reality, they're more limited because of financial choices. So, so there's, a, there's a big difference there. The other, the other huge difference, in private practice, we saw basically healthy people. They, you know, it was a, and, even, and remember, I'm in Antrim, New Hampshire. I'm in a very rural New Hampshire area. I'm not in, a, I'm not in Bedford or some other place that you might think that very, very, you might think Portsmouth, very affluent. But I thought I was seeing it all there. But these, these folks did not come, if they came in, in with those chronic diseases that I talked about be, before, they were being managed, they were being treated. So my job was much easier. I did the dental work. I did, I did the dentistry. I didn't have to deal with the, compu, the medical complications. I come here to Families First and say, wow, I, you know, we're gonna take, you know, take your blood pressure. Ooh, before I touch you, you're gonna go see primary care. We'll take the diabetic, same, you know, the same thing. So the, the focus here, the, the, you know, we necessarily need a focus on the whole body here, on the whole person. And it's, like I said before, it's a wonderful model for that because of the population we see. But it's a night and day. I didn't understand what was out there when I was in private practice. I loved it. I think the services provided were, were tremendously valuable. I think they were tremendously appreciated. But I didn't see, I didn't understand the population that was outside of my, that was not accessing the, um, my, my, my private practice. So th th there's really a very significant difference between the two practices. You said earlier that if you've seen uh, one FQHC, you've seen one FQHC. Is it standard to have a dental practice in a federally qualified health center, or is that something that makes Families First unique? It is no longer unique. It was unique when we when we initiated this. I, I, I'm I'm going to say we were one of the earlier ones. There's I, I think there's ten or eleven uh, FQHCs in in, uh, in New Hampshire right now, and. Um, I think the numbers are about the same. There's about 75% of, um, of, of uh, nationally of uh, uh, dental services are provided at 75% of the FQHCs. Uh, and there's about, oh, I'm going to say 14, 1350, 1400 federally qualified health centers across the country. So that's the, 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 um, the dental ser the, the uh, frequency of, of uh, dental services in, in these in these centers is increasing and the, the reason it's increasing and the reason it was even established it was the same reason they did it right here when 
when the ho hospitals in, in all areas have to do needs assessments, and what kept coming up in these needs assessments in either number two or three was oral health. So we've, we've kind of backed into this. As, as you're providing, as you're, and it's not just here, but, it, but it's, it's everywhere. People walking in with dental problems, you can't, you can't be healthy without a healthy mouth or, 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 with, a, or, or with active dental disease. You're gonna, you're, you're gonna have that con contributing to coronary artery disease, you're gonna have it contributing to diabetes, you're gonna have it contributing to preterm births. So th that's, that, that's the reason for the expansion of, of, of oral health, and it's been heavily supported by the government. Let's talk a little bit about, about your position here at Families First. What is your role as the dental director? What are your responsibilities? Well, remember that I'm a that you know I'm a volunteer here in this, which is unique unto it itself. And I have grown here with it. I was here day one. I came in here, and basically they looked to me to set this place up, and I set it up just like my private practice. Well, I had a learning curve, and so that learning curve applied to both the practice of dentistry and in uh, the growth through the leadership piece. But to, to some degree, the, we always think, I, I always think, what are the responsibilities of the dental director? And you think of them as administrative. You know, you know, one responsibility, of course, is the clinical piece, because in almost anywhere there's a dental director, they're, they're also the primary, one of the primary dentists. So there's the, the dental treatment piece. And then the next thing you think about is uh, the administrative piece. And that's, that's being part of the chain of command. That's policy. That's monitoring different matrices. But I, but I think the, 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 one of the biggest responsibilities of a, of, a, of a dental director is team building. In effective dental care delivery, oral health care delivery, effective and efficient team teamwork is absolutely critical so i would say the primary responsibility of a dental director is to develop that team and then and then to to look at how you can effectively and efficiently manage that team and provide services along those lines we're looking at policy development implementation taking it's very similar to uh, any operation where you you take the needs of the operation of the agency fly those to the dental center you take the needs of the dental center and uh, kind of titrate those against the uh, against the uh, the needs of the agency and the patients how many people are employed in the dental practice here that's good. We have a small. We have, we, have, we have a real. It's actually similar to my Navy experience, because it's a it's a small operation, and because it's a small operation, boy, we we can, we can turn things around here. We we can we can implement program. We can implement uh, changes. Uh, we can we can um, we can put a policy in place, see how it works, reevaluate it, and change it very very quickly. So the specific answer to your question is we have we have probably one point three full-time dentists. We have uh, our, our dentist is never without two assistants at all times. We have two hygienists that rotate through. That's here in the fixed center. 
As I said, we have a homeless outreach program too. So we're in Exeter with a, with a van and partnering with St. Vincent de Paul over there with, uh, with a dentist and a hygienist uh, once a week. We're up in Rochester um, with a van there with a, um, with a dentist and an assistant you know, once a week. We're at Crossroads with a dentist, assistant, and a hygienist. Crossroads is the is the um, homeless shelter here in Portsmouth, so uh, we're down there, and we, we're, since we're our, our fixed structure is so close there, we bring the we bring our the clients, our patients, back up here for that. So, you know, we do it. We also deal with. Uh, we need. We uh, and and we're blessed to have a significant volunteer dental core of probably about four dentists who help us with most of that outreach and with filling in behind our 1.3 paid dentists here when they want to go on vacation, when they go on attending courses, when they're, when they're out of here. You know, we've got a fixed facility here that's nothing but overhead and not seeing, and not fulfilling its role of, of prov providing access. So um, these volunteers fill in around those times that the, uh, the full-time dentist is out. How many patients are served here annually in the dental center? The dental center sees about uh, 2,000 patients. The agency itself sees a population of about 6,000 over, over all, all its programs. Like I say, in a, it's a fair number of, of dental patients for, uh, for, for a practice that, that, you know, this size but uh, it does allow us a lot of flexibility in how we do and what, what we do. What are the unique challenges of serving the family's first population versus your experience in private practice? In other words, what kinds of dental procedures are done? What are the differences in patient need? Uh, that, that's, a, that's a very good question. And so w what you're really addressing is, is a scope of service. So let me start with standard of care. Our standard of care has got to be exemplary. It's got to be as good. Uh, it's got to be as good as it can. These services can be gotten anywhere. It's, it's as good as my private practice was. So what we do, the quality of it, has got to be as good as it can be. Now that said, we provide a broad spectrum of dental services. In fact, we provide. Any service that you can get in a in a private private dental offices, we um, we 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 stress prevention. We provide thorough di th thorough diagnosis and treatment planning. We provide emergency care, and we do a lot of those pieces. We provide comprehensive restorative care, and that's all about you know fillings. We're, we're charged by the government and by Medi Medicaid to, to eliminate, to, to do those, the services of examination, treatment planning, but also to eliminate dental disease. So we will, we will address the active disease of dental, uh, of dental caries and, and periodontal disease. So past that, now we're, now we're looking at restorative, at um, rehabilitative care, where teeth are lost, where people are having trouble, you know, functioning. They might have trouble getting a job because they're, they're missing a front tooth. So we're talking, that's rehabilitative type of stuff. 
And that's where we're going to start to differ from the private sector to some degree because we're seeing a different population. We're seeing that population that's prime, almost all of it is below. We, we, we see maybe 15% private insurance here. The rest of it is, is you know, about 60% of it is between Medicare and Medicaid, and there's no dental benefit in Medicare. Uh, it's very limited, <laughs> very limited um, reimbursement for services under Medicaid, except for uh, children. So the, the, uh, the, the choices are the same. We can provide, uh, a, say, a fixed bridge or an, an implant, but the expense level is at usual and customary as opposed to our sliding fee scale. We, we can't, we, at, our, at our levels of compensation, nominal fee for two-thirds of the population, we wouldn't be here if we were providing implants for, for those nominal fees. And that, uh, I, that goes to, that goes to the, the core difference, you know, be, you know, between the two practices. By the same token, with that limited scope, we still, we still fill the need. We can put teeth in, in that smile with something removable that, that looks great. The, the patient that comes in and has a toothache, you know, in my private world, they might go to the wall to save that tooth. In, in this patient's world, they've got up, the kids are screaming, the car didn't start. The solution to that patient's problem is taken care of by getting that tooth out. So it's a, it's a little different world in, the, in that respect. So the, the specific answer to your question is the scope of services is, a, is, a, is narrower here, although anything is available. You've alluded to this a little bit, but could you talk a little bit about the revenue and billing at Families First uh, as opposed to being in private practice? Families First and pretty much any place, I think, in the, in the public sector is a lot easier for the dentist. We're charged primarily with patient care. The rest of the operation here is charged with the administrative piece. So my job, Dr. Fitzsimon's job, is to, to clinically manage that patient and provide them with the options. Those options then go with the patient to the treatment coordinator, and that's where the financial arrangements are made. Dentistry, and all the financial arrangements are made and all the appointments are made. And we, we actually have some of the same issues as far as, uh, as compared with the, the, the private sector. We, we need people to show up. Well, we, we, in the, generally in the public health sector, we have a much higher no-show broken appointment rate. In some of the clinics that I've seen, that can run as high as 25, 30%. That means one out of four people don't show up. That's disaster. You know, now we've got this whole system, this building, we've got these assistants, we've got all this fancy equipment sitting here and doing nothing. Not only that, the people who need it aren't getting in. So we have to be able to manage that in, in some way and pre pre prevent that. The other, th the other thing that we haven't touched on that, that um, you know, I'd like to mention is the cost of dental care. When, when we first 
when we when facilities and agencies look at putting dental dental centers into their operations, they they think of it. Yeah, okay, we're going to put another. We'll put a dermatology clinic in. We'll put an allergy clinic in, and they find out very quickly that it's a different animal. Um, and many of them, in the in the in the earlier going, in in uh, when, when these were initially being put in, a lot of them folded. We had Exeter. We had a clinic here in Exeter. You know, fold. They just by their standards, by their parameters, you know, they they just they just couldn't do it financially. Dentistry is very expensive. Uh, service to provide. Everything's expensive uh, around it. The personnel, you know, it's an op. It's it's not only the diagnostic piece of primary care. It's the treatment piece of the surgical operation. It's the it's the people that are needed. It's the it's 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 all the HIPAA and the OSHA, and so it's very very difficult to balance that bottom line. And, and to do it as, I mean, it's difficult enough. And this is why dentistry is expensive in the public, in the private sector itself. It isn't, you know, it isn't all going home. It, you know, it's a very expensive service to, to, to provide. And even here, we need to be providing these services at these reduced fees. We need to be more efficient, more effective with our time. We need to. We need those. We need. Um, we need those financial arrangements to be made and kept. We need with those. We need people to show up for their appointments. But we do have the benefit here of the rest of the infrastructure of this of this clinic. So we'll send somebody out here, and this this uh, we have de we have dedicated people for, for dental. But there are areas. Some of our appointment people are confirming appointments are doing it for medical too. So some of those some of the we, we use some of the resources. All our insurance goes out uh, by some of the same people who deal with the medical piece. So it's a is a re there's real value in the infrastructure here that that, um, that that the practicing dentist really doesn't have to deal with. Why do people choose to get their dental care from families first and not from a private practice? Yeah, that, that's a that's a that's another good question. I, I mean they they can we exist to serve populations that have trouble accessing care. But all are welcome. And in reality, I would love to see more people who can pay for their services or have more private insurance. It would help us a lot with our bottom line. Why do people come? It's that sliding fee scale is a huge benefit. I mean, you know, we slide down, you know, our, our nominal fee here is $35. So somebody comes in for an exam and x-rays, that's thirty-five dollars. Well, if 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 they're if they're below the federal poverty level and somewhere in between. So so the the quick answer to to your question is, you know, finances have a lot to do with it. That said, again, we provide all these integrated services: integration, 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 under one roof, and regardless of the ability to pay. That's why they're coming here. Could others? Come here and and receive the the same scope of services, absolutely. The same standard of care, absolutely. I encourage them to. In two thousand and nine, um, you expanded your role here by becoming involved with the dental care to the homeless component of Families First. Could you talk a little bit about that? What did that role entail? Well, so uh, I came 
I came out of uh, I came out of private practice, you know, Antrim, New Hampshire, and um, you know I thought I knew it all. So I came in here and I I learned I didn't know it all, and then then we started the homeless piece. And again, the reason we started the homeless piece, the dental, the, the homeless piece was in place. That's why we originally had our FQHC designation. However. As, as these nurse practitioners and physicians and primary care folks went out into the field and saw these homeless people, they came back pretty, you know, pretty quickly. And once we had this dental place, and then they said, Dr. Homix, the, the, these folks need dental as much as they need anything else. And we can't, get, we can't deal with some of the, 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 the primary care issues until we get these dental, you know, infections and pain and suffering and all this under, under control. So, therefore, we put the dental piece or the oral health piece into the homeless outreach. So, my, my personal experience with that has been absolutely enlightening. I never used to ask the next question. You know, I, I, I get the information that I need and, and, and run with it. So, for instance, Boy, you got a you got a lot of. When did you see a dentist last? Well, I saw when I was incarcerated. I would usually let it go at that and then and track the clinical piece. I ask the next question now, and it will be, why were you in court incarcerated? And this may seem like an invasion of privacy, but it's very interesting that these folks, to a to a person, are glad to talk about where they've been. And where they've been is so enlightening that this population is out there. I didn't have a clue what was going on while I was in. I had no idea. I, I had heard about homeless, but I didn't really know what it meant. I didn't. I, I, I didn't. I didn't. I knew people slept in their cars, but I never saw the cars. I have some great patients, some patients that are, you know, are, are you know, are, are bright, appreciate our services, and they, they they live in a tent in the woods through the whole year. So, enlightening, in a humanistic way for me. And then, the, this these folks are so appreciative of the minimal services that we can that we provide them. If you can take care of my toothache, I'm a happy camper. The other services that we provide for is our, our, our cleanings. Because so, some of these folks come in and, you know, a lot of, a lot of oral health issues are, are kind of genetically determined and it's all a resistance to disease. Well, some of these folks are very resistant. But, so we see a lot of them come in and say, can I get my teeth cleaned? And you make people really happy with that. And you know what? Making people really happy is really rewarding. And so I, uh, you know, for my, for my piece in this whole thing, to think that, you know, I've had the opportunity in a second, a second professional life. Boy, I tell you, there's nobody around here more thankful than I am to, to have been exposed to this homeless piece, to this, the, the, you know, this po population that um, accesses um, the services at this, um, at this agency. Let's transition just a little bit. You've also been involved in the New Hampshire Dental Society, serving as a chairperson and its president from 2004 to 2005. Could you tell us a little bit about the organization? What does the New Hampshire Dental Society do? Well, so the, the, 
Organized dentistry is basically a, a, a built around the American Dental Association, a tripartite organization. The ADA in Chicago, nationally, you know, 70% of the dentists in the country, you know, the, Amer the, the uh, state level, New Hampshire, maybe 80% of the dentists plus a couple hundred hygienists, a lot of dental providers, and then the component level. The, uh, the, so the New Hampshire Dental Society, the American Dental Association, are the go-to people in, in knowledge of oral health. They provide information, education, and support. So the New Hampshire Dental Society does that same thing on a state level. We provide support for the profession, to elevate the profession, to be able to address the oral health needs of the, of the people of New Hampshire, citizens of New Hampshire, and to make available to them the best oral health care available. So it's support for the profession, it's education, it's advocacy. It's advocacy for the, for the, uh, for the dentist, for the profession. We, um, we, do, we, we do a lot of, uh, we do a lot of legislative work from the standpoint of either supporting or initiating or coming out against. It's very interesting. If, if you haven't had the experience in, in New Hampshire and probably anywhere, citizens want it, they, they want to make, they want it their way. Or they, 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 want, they want this or they want that and they'll go to their legislature and the legislator wants to support them. The legislature really doesn't know much about many of the things that they have to deal with. I found this when I had to, when, when, as I was going through the chairs and indeed had to go in and, and testify, you know, fairly frequently on oral health issues. And I found it, I found doing that was also, you know, enlightening because these legislators, I mean, we're not necessarily always on the same page, but there was a level of ignorance. They can't, they can't know everything. And needless to say, most of them know very little about oral health care delivery. So, you know, so we're in there, you know, quite a bit on it from an educational standpoint and dealing with the issues that the dentists have to deal with in both the private and public sector. What is your involvement with the New Hampshire Dental Society consisted of? What were your responsibilities as a chairperson and as the president? The chair is just trying to get get things done, and um, we, you know we have nine components. So uh, getting uh, getting the components around one table, you know, hearing what's going on, developing developing uh, you know policies and positions. As big as anything, when, when I came through the chairs of the New Hampshire Dental Society, access to oral health care just hit the fan. In 2000, the Surgeon General wrote a report on uh, the state of oral health, and, and um, he called it an epidemic. And he identified the disparities across different populations. This brought in the government and foundations and again, just as I didn't see it when I was in Antrim, the profession over the, over, in the big picture ha hadn't seen it either. So as I came through the chairs, my goal, my primary interest was to bring that knowledge of that need to the profession in New Hampshire and to bring that private sector. We've got oral health needs 
as a population. Fairly qualified health centers, the clinics, they're not going to get it all done. The private sector has to be involved in the solution of these issues. So, you know, my job, my, my, my focus at that, as I came through the chairs, was bringing the public sector into an awareness and a participation in the needs of the, um, of the public sector. What do most people misunderstand about the field of dentistry? You're at a dinner party and you meet someone and tell them that you're a dentist. What are they most likely assuming that is wrong? What have you most often had to explain to people about what dentistry really is or really like? Well, at the dinner party, I'm going the other way. Uh, you know, I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to avoid that discussion. In, as I'm talking to, uh, you know, someone interested maybe in coming into the profession. I mean, what are the stereotypes? Expense, pain. Well, I'm going to I'm going to go I'm going to go very quickly to the the fact that we, you know, from the uh, we we control pain. Pain is very people talk about you know, we'll talk about root canals and how you know, this went bad and that went bad. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's the medical world we live in. We practice. And some do, for the most part, dental, you know, dental health care delivery is, is, is very, very, you know, effective. It can, be, it, can be, it can be expensive. It can be expensive, for the most part, you know, in two areas. One is where, where people opt for certain aesthetics. Expensive to deliver, expensive to be provided. They can be they can be expensive when there's neglect, and you have to play catch up. So there's really no there's really no dodging, you know those two, you know those two bullets. When when I'm dealing, you know, if I'm at the that dinner party, I'm, I'm you know there's some angst involved there. But when I'm dealing with someone who looks as though they want to go into the dental profession, now I'm going to talk about uh, uh, or, or or even that even let's go back to that patient and say, who does that? You know, you know most patients love their dentist, so they they may raise this or this issue or, or that or that issue, but but. You know, uh, you're, you're going to talk to a high, the highest percentage of uh, people who say they have a great relationship with, with their dentist. And so, yeah, you know, I'd push that piece. Let's transition our talk a little bit to talk about leadership, especially in your current role at Families First. What is your leadership philosophy? My leadership philosophy is, is simple, and it's, a, it, it's, it's one that I used, employed in my family as, as, we, as my wife and I raise children, and it's basically modeling. You know, do the right thing. In dentistry, as I said, I, I try, to build, try to build teams. As far as leadership is concerned, in building that team, the, uh, the participants, the assistants, uh, they need to buy in. So they're going to buy in if they believe in me, if they believe in the mission of the, of the operation, the agency, the clinic, and they're going to buy in if they feel they're making a significant contribution. So that's got to be built on time. Dental healthcare delivery is, is, is hard. I mean, it's physically tough. So, so We've got to work hard at it. That's that uh, from a leadership standpoint, they, they've got to see that. Once they see that, it's very unusual that I don't get people. We don't get people working 
really hard behind us. Also, there's from the standpoint of, you know, really, I'm a wet-fingered dentist, and, and what, what, what is always, a couple of things have worked, is when if I, if I, if I, see, if I see results that I, that, I, that, I, that I like in my staff, I'm going to praise that. I do the same thing with my kids. Results that I want to see or, or uh, activity that I want to see repeated, I praise it all the time. I, I do that. I, I, you know, I do that here. The other piece is with my dentist or, or others. I, it's a see one, do one, teach one. So here, let's let's uh, uh, let's let's look and see how this is done. I'm going to demonstrate this one to you, and I'll do that with the, with the uh, you know with the assistance group too. This is how I would do it. Let's see you do it, and now take it off and teach it to somebody else. So in the big picture. Uh, you know, I'm about the modeling piece, the, uh, the, the relate, you know, the trust, building the trust piece and, and going from there. What are the characteristics and behaviors of a good leader and how do you aspire to those yourself? <laughs> I, I think this comes back to the previous discussion here, too. I, I, I think you gotta, you got to lead by example. And, and it's, it's, it's really easy to go to the technical stuff. You know, as a good leader, uh, you know, do you dot your eyes, do you dot your eyes and cross your T's, and you got to do all that stuff. But a good leader builds trust. A good leader builds relationships. The, dentistry is no different than anything else. It's a people business. It's a relationship business. That's the, and and that's the good news. It, it, can it be mechanical? Can it be all, be all about fillings and root canals and crowns? Absolutely. And those, those play a part. But, you know, but the satisfaction, the reward, the effectiveness, I feel strongly, is in relationship building and trust. What do you look for when hiring and evaluating leaders? You know, one of the first things I, I look for, I look for someone who listens. I look for someone who I believe can, when I get a chance to look at them, are they buying into the mission? I need you to be part of the mission. And your behavior is gonna tell me that. Are you listening to me? You don't have to take everything I say, or I don't necessarily take anything, everything you're gonna say, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn who you are. You're gonna learn who I am, and we'll take what we want and leave the, you know, leave the rest. The other thing I really like to see is someone who looks for responsibility and executes it. Could you give us an example of a difficult leadership lesson that you had to learn the hard way? <laughs> the hardest thing I have ever had to, I have, and I still have to do, to do less of it here, but is terminating someone. And in Antrim, I had a staff member who had been with me for some time and for various reasons uh, I had to terminate her. So I called her in, you always, you hire at the beginning of the day, fire at the end of the day. So I got her in at five o'clock and I said, uh, look, I really appreciate you've been with me, we've had a great relationship and I talked to her forever and you know, I said, that's that's it. She showed up for work the next day. So I wasn't very effective in my firing. She didn't hear me. <laughs> so 
I learned a lot from that. And, and so, but that is the hardest thing to, to, re to, to reject people to, to, to me. I mean, you put your, you, you know, you really, you can change people, but not much. And you learn that over time too. You learn to make some. You learn to make some quick. You, you get some pr pretty quick judgments and eval evaluations. Try not to judge people, but you can certainly evaluate them. And when you see things that that really aren't going right, and and so, so the, the the difficult pieces are in staff are all in staff management. You can't have one person out of sync, or they poison the they can poison poison the whole system. So controlling controlling staff. Is um, is the biggest challenge, and again, probably my biggest failure was that that staff member that showed up for work the next day after being fired. Let's talk a little bit about mentorship. Did you have a mentor or mentors early in your career? How did that person help you if you did? Was it a formal or an informal relationship? Wow, wow. You know, I never I use the word mentor, and I I think, geez, is that was that. I meet with this person a bunch of times. They walk me through this. They help me with that. I didn't have a lot of that. I had a father, though, who set standards big time. See, you know, we, we can talk about leadership. We can talk about oral health care delivery. We can talk about FQHCs. Uh, you know, there's morals and virtues. <laughs> and you can't get by those, you know. And, and so it starts there. For me, it started with my family. I had a couple, uh, and, and as I came through time and even through my adult life, I had a couple parish priests who were tremendously valuable to me, and tremendously helpful. And coming through school at, at Cornell, I had, a, I had an assistant dean that took some interest. I struggled through my, my first year and a half at Cornell University. I really struggled. You know, he was there for me. I got to, um, in my interviewing process and everything at, at, at Columbia, I ran into a, another, you know, dean there who was, you know, uh, who was able um, to, to talk to and get through that, you know, uh, so I, I, can, I, can, I can identify those, those people through time. So as far as mentoring, as, I, as you get into the profession, again, dentistry can tend to be insular and it's dangerous. So you've got to get outside of the operatory, outside of the treatment room, outside of the clinic. And, and that's why continuing education for dentists is, uh, and, and oral health care uh, providers is critical. That's where you get, that's why the dental society, the collegiality piece. It isn't just about, hey, let's have a meal together and a drink. You know, let's solve, oh, oh that happened or this happened. So, I mean, that's a level of mentorship. Um, uh, that's a, a level of peer review. So, you know, the continuation, I, I, even when, when I was in the Navy, the Navy was great on continuing education. Um, I, I, remember, uh, I remember going to Walter Reed and hearing a colonel, and <laughs> the colonel's name was Bashkar. And, and I, I listened to that man and said, wow, this is great. I went back and heard him every time I could possibly hear him, and I did the same thing when I could, when when when, when I could identify with somebody. And and you know, I, we did a lot of. I you spent a lot of time on developing communication skills and 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 staff development and how you do that. That all came through continuing education. And so each one of these people, as as I grabbed on, they were really a mentor, huh? They weren't necessarily someone that, you know, I met for, you know, a cup of coffee or a cocktail or something like that. 
but they were out there for me. So the, the exposure to outside influence, beginning at my my you know my family and my my my, my faith and and coming right through to my you know my wife was, was tremendous. I mean, dentistry takes a ton of time. I mean, you know, it's, a, it's it's changing to some degree now, but boy, I didn't get home until seven o'clock at night. Well, there was never an issue there, and there was tremendous support. And that's that's got to be there. That's a level of mentoring. That's a level of listening. So it all happens there. It doesn't just happen at the at that professional level. Do you mentor other leaders now? And if so, what do you get out of being a mentor? <laughs> it keeps me young. Uh, my son's a dentist, and uh, you know he started. Uh, he's up in up in uh, Cape Elizabeth in Biddeford, Maine, and um, so I mean this mentoring thing goes both ways. And so do I have. I, I never knew how much I knew until my son came out, and in, and indeed not just him, but when I started to see these younger dentists come through here my expectations were unrealistic and I didn't understand that. I didn't understand how much I knew. <laughs> and I'm nothing special, you know. I just, like I said, I'm a wet-fingered dentist. I put one foot in front of the other. But over 30 years, you know, you learn a lot, especially if you're out there. And so, you know, we've got a lot to share. So, yeah, and it, but, but it, you know, I try to keep it in a very informal way. I, I, I hate to... You know, I, you never like. I you don't like to come down from the top. I like to come in from a level, uh, for, you know, from a level playing field, peer to peer with with other dentists. Suggest things, throw things out. You know, another one of my, you know, throw throw the mud and st see what see what sticks. And I I do that with my son. I do that with our dentists, the dentists that have come through here. They have the rewarding pace to see them develop, and they develop fast, and they're smart. And, you know, like I say, it's a two-way street right now. You know, I, I get, you know, do I have some things, to, some, some uh, you know, information and knowledge to share? Sure. But, uh, boy, they bring a lot to the table, too. And so the reward, uh, the reward, again, we come back to, and we come back to relationships. Um, that's where, <laughs> this is a big picture. This is a cold, cruel world out there. To be able to have those relationships, develop those relationships and trust and caring, that's what it's that's what it's about. For a young person thinking about a career in healthcare, what do you think that they should know uh, about dental medicine? What kind of opportunities are available for them? I've had the opportunity to talk about this um, through my experience with bi-state primary care, uh, the Primary Care Association in New Hampshire, which is which is all about supporting primary care. And and uh, you know when oral health became a, started to become an issue back after the Surgeon General's the, the Surgeon General's report, the Primary Care Association needed they didn't know anything about dental. Well. I'm sitting out there. I got a background in um, in private practice, and boy, I've learned a lot in the public sector. So we spent a lot of I, I spent a lot of time with them, and they, we, with them, we developed a program and and, um, and went into the schools, uh, and we would talk. Uh, we would talk about what uh, what dental practice is like, and what and you know one of the biggest things about about dentistry is flexibility. And there's a tremendous number. When I when I was at dental school, there was one woman in my class. Well, now the women are 50% of the classes anyway. 
And so there's tremendous flexibility. There's flexibility in where you practice. There's flexibility in how you practice, public, private, group, solo. There's flexibility in, in what you practice. Do you do oral surgery? Do you do periodontics? Do you do orthodontics? There's all this flexibility across the table. That's, that, that's really great. There's this ability to develop relationships. Like, you know, we, I, I, you talk about, uh, you know, cocktail parties and more often than hearing problems with dentistry, I hear about, I hear from people how they, the, the relationship they have with their dentists, that that's, you know, that's about, that's out there. The, the opportunity to, the, the, the flexibility between the private and the public, big deal. I mean, a big difference, but that's a huge opportunity. You know, not everybody wants to their, their run their own thing, but you can you can develop the same relationships, develop the same teams in in a in a public sector. So so going forward, to me, it's a little scary because I, I think there are some you know it, I mean it doesn't take a genius to realize some variables going on out there right now, from an editorial standpoint. Now, you know I I, I think insurance is is beaten up on medicine. They, you know, the insurance companies are dictating medical medical care. Well, they haven't done so much in dental, but they're starting. So you get the um, all the you look at the look at the the medical model. There aren't a lot of doctors that practice by themselves anymore. They are owned by the hospital, and the hospitals are owned by the insurance companies. And I apologize for the editorial piece, but I don't think there's any any question about it. So that's leaking into dentistry now. It scares me. There's a place for dental insurance to, to be sure. You know, the statistics, the data is all, all there. The people who have dental insurance, you know, seek more, more, uh, more care than those who don't. But, but uh, it, it's a changing environment. What's it going to look like? I'm not too sure. You know, my son owns two, you know, two small practices. I see a lot of that coming. I think the future of uh, solo practice is, is, is iffy in the long run. But what's not going to change is there's two things that have to happen. First, first, dentistry is expensive to deliver. It is, and so it's still got to be delivered effectively and efficiently. That has to happen. But at the end of the day, the opportunities for professional growth, being part of the medical world, being integrated more and more, because that's what's really happened, right? in the last 10 years with Families First and, and with the awareness of oral health, much more integrated and, and, and the realization of its importance in general health and well-being is there. So that opportunity to be part of that, it's, it, it, it's, it's a great opportunity. The, the opportunity to develop all these relationships that I'm talking about, develop teams and, and all that. I, I can't imagine doing it any other way, going any other way. Well, Dr. Hamitz, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you for listening to me. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.